Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session 4 of The Beauty of Holy Choices, a new weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma, for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. In 2015, I wrote a book entitled The Beauty of Holy Choices, which examines people from the Bible who pleased God by making a hard choice in a difficult circumstance. Each of the 12 chapters is a standalone story, and they're all woven together by their emphasis on holiness arranged in the order in which they appear in Scripture. Each unit ends with clear application to today's Christian walk and a challenge to the reader. This fourth installment is entitled Pua and Shipra Respect Life. All scripture is taken from the King James or the English Standard Version. After Jacob's son Joseph served as a slave in Egypt, God eventually raised him up to a position of power that was second only to Pharaoh, and Joseph's extended family joined him there during a severe famine. Generations later, the children of Israel were still living on the outskirts of Pharaoh's capital city in the land of Goshen, where they took care of their herds. As God blessed them and they grew, they somehow seemed ominous and threatening to Egypt's new ruler, so he enslaved them to preempt a coup. The once happy family became bowed down with hard labor and angry taskmasters as they made brick to build the pyramids. Yet instead of their fertility suffering, it thrived. Many young Jewish women continually gave birth to healthy baby boys and girls who survived. Finally, Pharaoh had had enough. Exodus 1, 15 and 16. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shipra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son... Then you shall kill him, but if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Pharaoh decided to practice a draconian form of population control, infanticide. He figured the best time to do the deed was right at birth, before the mother had the chance to hold or suckle her child. Just tuck the newborn under an arm, bolt out the door, and toss it into the Nile, while the mother was not in any position to resist, and before she could see or bond with her baby. It was a slash-and-burn mentality, devoid of compassion and designed for utmost efficiency. Pua and Shipra both had made a career of helping to bring life into the world. Perhaps their skills had prevented many stillbirths and maternal deaths. At the very least, they were coaches and comforters, assistants, and a loving set of extra hands when a new mother needed it most. It is not reasonable to assume that only two women could handle the childbirth needs of a population that may have been a half million or more at this point. Dozens of babies would have been born every day, especially in an age without much, if any, contraception. However, it does appear that any other midwives who delivered Hebrew babies at that time were under the direction of Pua and Shipra. That's why Pharaoh addressed them specifically. You could think of these women as the chief attending obstetricians 
of their day. Can you even begin to imagine the dilemma in which these midwives were placed? It was quite simply kill or be killed. No one stood up to Pharaoh and refused to obey his commands even on moral grounds. It wasn't doable. He'd simply nod to his right-hand man and the person's life would be over, just like that. Perhaps the women contemplated for just a minute what it would mean to obey the king. We wouldn't even have to let the baby ever take its first breath, they may have thought. We could just tell the mom the baby wasn't born alive and she'd have no way of knowing for sure. God will understand. Our lives are at stake here. However, the holy choice is often the difficult one. There is no acceptable justification for the murder of someone's newborn, not even to preserve your own life. You simply have to stand in the wind without getting blown over and say, no, I will not do this no matter what. And that is exactly what these ladies did. So the days went by and nothing changed about their delivery routine. When a beautiful baby boy let out his first cry, Pua and Shipra rejoiced with the family. They dried the baby off, cut the cord, cleaned out his mouth, wrapped him up, and placed him with his mother. Perhaps they were a little nervous now and then, but they never wavered. They were midwives, not murderers. Exodus 1, 17-19 says, But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they're lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. We need not assume that Pua and Shipra lied to Pharaoh. Hebrew women were hardworking and may indeed have been of a physical constitution that tended toward quicker deliveries than their more leisurely Egyptian aristocrats. But whether or not their story to Pharaoh was entirely true, they valued the innocent lives of the babies Pharaoh would have killed. The courage required to do the right thing in the face of grave danger was a holy thing that pleased God. Exodus 1, 20 and 21 says, Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that He made them houses. What a happy example of what goes around comes around. At some point... Pua and Shipra both realized that they themselves were also with the child. The pregnancies resulted in live, healthy babies as God's special blessing rested on these women for the choices they made. If they had boys, what must have run through Pua's and Shipra's minds when those newborn males cried for the first time? God's Word is replete with affirmations of the holiness of of valuing human life. Genesis 9-6 says, Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. This verse comes from the covenant that God made with Noah long before Abraham, the children of Israel, or the Ten Commandments. Exodus 23-7, The innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. 
God tells Moses here that innocent human life must not be taken and that God is the fearsome judge of those who break this cardinal law. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, included lack of respect for human life in the top seven things that God hates most. Proverbs 6, 16-19 says, These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and get number three here, hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift to running in mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that sows discord among brethren. Both Ezekiel and Job gave a reason beyond the obvious about why respect for human life is a holy choice. Ezekiel 18.4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. Job 12.10 says, In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Taking the life of another is stealing something that does not belong to the killer, one of God's created souls. But enough about the immorality of traditionally defined murder. While we're on the subject of babies, is there any biblical basis to go a step further and extend this prohibition against taking human life to a prohibition against taking the life of an unborn child? Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5 When God called young, reluctant Jeremiah to be a prophet, he said something very interesting. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. Apparently, God wasn't waiting around to see if the mother was willing to carry her child to term. He had plans for Jeremiah that went back to before his conception. Jeremiah was in God's hands during his fetal development and was destined to deliver God's message before he was even old enough to make the choice to serve him. One of the most famous scriptures used to make a case for the personhood of the unborn can be found in a song that King David wrote, Psalm 139, 13-16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Does it really make sense for us to believe, on the one hand, that God valued the lives of the baby boys who were born to Hebrew women and in danger of Pharaoh's sword, but then not believe that God also valued those same lives the day before, when they were still in the womb, or the week before, or the month before? In other words, at what 
point during fetal development is it too soon for God to cherish the growing baby? God spoke to another prophet about his interest in and care for the unborn. Isaiah 44, 2, and then verse 24. Thus says the Lord that made you and formed you from the womb, which will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jezreel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb. I am the Lord that makes all things that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. If God is the creator, then fetal development is much, much more than a biological process of cell division. To interrupt it would be to interfere with God's very plan for the life of another human being. Should we not respect each little life from the moment that it is conceived? There's another undervalued time of life that God's Word calls us to respect and protect, grave sickness and old age. Job 2, 9 and 10 says, Then said his wife unto him, Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job lost everything he had, and then God allowed Satan to make him terribly ill. His wife seems to be urging him to commit suicide here, an act some would probably label justifiable or an act of euthanasia. But even in his darkest hour, Job recognizes the great value of the life God had given him, and he would have none of it. But wait a minute. My life is my own. Even if we accept the premise that no one has the right to take the life of another human, including an unborn one, can we not at least grant each person the right to decide for himself whether he will go on living? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says, Know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defiles the temple of God... Him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Paul doesn't build a lot of wiggle room into this scripture. He summarily condemns anyone who would take his own life. We know that God is merciful, and some people are not in a rational state when they make such decisions. We cannot say how God would judge any one individual, and we should never use a verse like this to heap pain on the family of someone who has committed suicide. But at the very least, the text is clear that God does not grant to any person the right to take his own life. Later, in that very same letter to the Corinthians, Paul describes death as a bad thing rather than something to be looked forward to or embrace. 1 Corinthians 15.26 says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Of course, the Christian can experience victory even in death, and the hope of the saints for life beyond the grave is a wonderful thing. But death came into the world in the first place as the result of man's sin, and it is no friend to the human race. In other words, the take-home message is simply that God greatly values life, and people should too. The holiness 
of a respect for life must go beyond merely making sure that you don't ever kill anyone. It extends to being a hero for those who are in danger of death at the hands of someone else. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? God was well pleased with the holy choices that Pua and Shipra made when they could have acted in fear to save their own skins instead. Would he not also be pleased by the efforts of his followers to promote pro-life values and respect for the lives of the elderly and sick? We dare not indulge in the luxury of turning our heads and doing nothing. Human life is too precious. Let us make the holy choice to protect and preserve it at every available opportunity. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, pass it along. 